now listening to No Truths Welcome back to a brand new episode of No Truths Bard, the best up-and-coming podcast on the internet, and I'm your host, Hoy Kuwaku Simmons, and I want to thank everybody who has provided a piece of um, constructive criticism, positive feedback, decided to share a piece of content. I'm deeply, deeply appreciative of any uh, and all types of support. You know, this is a very small platform, so I'm working every day to grow out the platform. And also, if you've missed any of the previous 52 episodes. You can find those episodes on Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. And I'm on YouTube as well. So you can check me out on YouTube. So thank you once again. And this is episode 53. So without further ado, I have a, a person on today that, um, man, I consider um, just a, a, a brilliant person, an intellectual giant, um, a leader, a visionary, a, 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 an innovator, um, a, a person who I've been privileged to know, I think, for almost over a decade now, I believe. And um, she was on the podcast earlier this year, and she decided to take time out of her schedule and come and join me again. I have on none other than the powerful Miss Lawano Lawson. How are you doing today? How you doing, Brother Quacko? I'm happy to see you. Man. I am just uh, privileged and honored to be here with you. Oh. And, you know... You've always been an intellectual giant, you know, you, you just have you. been uh, someone that I know, you know, whenever you put out information, whenever you talk about something, whatever opinion it is that you share, I know that it is it's going to be prolific because it's going to be real well researched. It's going to be, um, you know, it's going to be worth its weight in gold. So I just want to appreciate you for a moment, give you a flower. Thank you. Uh, Thank for being you. So awesome. Thank you. And, 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 you know, uh, I think a lot of times, you know, I put up a post a few days ago and, and, you know, uh, you commented and it's the whole concept of, of iron sharp sharpens iron. And a lot of times in life, I think we become stagnant because we're not around people that are going to push us to, to take that extra step to dig a little bit deeper. And one of the things I can say about my circle of friends is that we all have that perspective to kind of go the extra mile, whether it's business, intellectually, or what have you. So, you know, it's never, ever a lag or no mediocrity allowed, as, as I would like to put it, you know. But um, I want to jump in uh, straight into to today's uh, episode. Today is episode 53. I can't believe I'm on 53 episodes. This is crazy. So, <laughs> and, this, <laughs> and this is my first That's Zoom. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so listen, uh, let's. It's a lot of crazy stuff going on. Um, so much to touch on today. So uh, it's a it's a it's a statement that I've heard said by many different scholars, and it's a statement that when white America catches the cold, Black America catches the flu, which is very true. When you look at that from a perspective, like a, a economic aspect, if you're looking at at it from a social aspect, or most germane to this conversation from the pandemic aspect. And so um, I want to ask you, 
when you look at the pandemic, because we look at how um, a lot of jobs were, uh, you know, greatly thwarted, eliminated, adversely affected due to the pandemic. And unfortunately, a lot of those jobs included a lot of black and brown people. And so the whole concept in the conversation has been, when do we get back to normal? When do we go back? And I don't know if there is a normal. And so I want to ask you, and, and this is kind of like a free flow conversation. When we think about the impact of the pandemic, um, especially on our community, if we're looking at it from the perspective of, of jobs, um, overall opportunity, um, what are some of the long-term effects that you think that maybe people have touched on and some things that we may not have really highlighted so far of the pandemic? I mean, you're spot on. I mean, the first thing that really bothered me um, that I recently found out through Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs has been doing some really interesting research around what the true impact of the pandemic has been on, on African-American businesses, on our uh, communities, right? They found that 40 for every dollar that a white man gets, black women business owners are getting 47 cents on the dollar. 47 cents wow. on a dollar. And you know, for me, that impacted me uh, in more ways than one, because as a black woman, black woman business owner, you know, when I look around and I look for opportunity to grow my business, that opportunity has almost disappeared because of the pandemic, right? Like it was already very slim uh, uh, prior to the pandemic, but you look at it now and the, it's, you know, that professional services realm with project management, with the IT, with the non-technical aspect of project management, you know, the research and evaluation, grants, all those different things um, that come into growing organizations and sustaining organizations, those opportunities had, they were already dwindling, you know, wow. and now you look around and it's like, oh my gosh, there's nothing at all. Um, and it's terrifying because like you said, how do you, how do you begin to talk about getting back to normal when you have literally seen, what was it? I think the statistic back in April was 40% of African-American businesses at yep. that point mm -hmm. had already shut up, you know, shut their doors permanently. So, you know, you look at what this pandemic means for us. We are dying. Um, I'm working with all different types of organizations throughout the world at this point, and we are dying in silence. You know, there's so many of our children that are going back to school and let's face it, they have to be in school because they can't learn, you know, virtually. It just doesn't work for them. Yeah. Um, our schools are failing our kids right now. They've been failing our kids uh, this entire year, even during summer school, because if you look at the, the, you know, the passing rates and you look at the scores on tests, our children are failing, especially our black and brown children. They're failing miserably right now. So you look and it's the entire black community is bleeding right now. We're bleeding. And there's not enough that's being said because at the end of the day, we were already bleeding before the pandemic. So now it's just the, the blood is flowing into the streets, right? Um, and there is no back to normal for black and brown people. Let's get that right. We need to get that out, get that clear. There is no going back to normal. There's nothing to go back to. That's gone. That's burned. It's buried. If you look at the markets, you look at the futures, the futures did well today. They've been doing well generally uh, since the, uh, the outcome of the, the presidential election. And it's because of this focus on manufacturing, right? Getting America back to uh, localized uh, prominence. 
you know, we want Americans to be able to mine uranium, uh, mine titanium, mine uh, copper, you know, uh, getting back to mining, getting back to manufacturing in the United States is going to help us tremendously in the future. And those jobs will come to us. But in terms of black businesses being able to get into those sectors, get into that uh, rare earth material commodities uh, space, we are not given that opportunity to even compete there. We're not given. It's the same thing that we saw with weed. You know, weed is doing great right now because of mm. uh, this, again, the presidential election, because of the decriminalization of, of marijuana, you know, in, in several states. And we're hoping to get that to a federal level. But the reality, again, it's the same story that we saw there. You know, weed is legal for the white man, but not for the black man. Yes. It's cool and sex being hit for white people, but not for us. It, so it's it, just all these sectors, as we continue to get sophisticated in tech, um, as tech continues to sophisticate, I should say, and as mm-hmm. digital parity becomes something that is really, truly unattainable for us, um, I think we're just going to see that we're going to get closed out of several sectors. Um and that's, but that's, see, that's the conversation that people don't want to have about capitalism. When you talk about going back to normal, capitalism works because of the fact that we don't participate, because we have not been able to participate. That's why capitalism works, right? So you're talking about going back to normal. Yeah, normal for you, because mm. I was not even in the picture. And you love that I'm not in the picture because when I'm not in the picture, I'm not competing, right? I'm just a yeah. consumer. So I think once we get to understanding that they are counting on us, this new regime uh, and all of the people that they're going to be appointing, which I'm happy to, uh, about a good a good number of the people that will be coming into uh, leadership positions and should have been, you know, should have been there before. But the reality is that they're going to have to maintain the status quo and they're going to have to continue to ensure the status quo, which is always going to be uh, not in our people's best interest. That's, and that's, that's something that we have to be very real and be very clear with. And so that's why I'm all about digital parity. And that's why I'm all about, you know, this open source sort of ecosystem, because in the open source ecosystem is where we begin to thrive. Yeah. Because that's when we get to go back and look at all the places in the world that have uh, natural wealth, and that's going to be mother in, in our motherland, Mama Africa. We go back there, and we're able to go back to Mama Africa and say, "We know that you have all the original brilliance, all the native knowledge, all the native uh, innovation comes here. All the disruptive technology still to this day comes out of Africa, the continent, right? If we're able to go back to Africa and say, "I'm here to share knowledge with you. I'm not here to try to slap on patents and intellectual property rights." I'm here to do the work so that we can make sure that we all survive and we all thrive in a world that works for us all. Yeah. It only happens in the open source ecosystem. Let's be real. If it's not open source, then it's not, it's not based on merit. And that's what we're trying to get to. I think you can't talk about egalitarianism and everything like that without really looking at, you know, merit. Yeah. Do you study this? Are you clear on this? Is this a, sub- a subject matter? Or is this something that you are, you know, you're good at, you've got some lessons learned that you can share, you've got some evidence-based best practices in that space. That's what we're looking at. And it's not disqualifying anybody. You know, the artist can do what the artist does that, you know, the software engineer can't. Yeah. And vice versa. It's not about trying to 
you know, value techne over, you know, epistem as we've done previously. You know, we're just trying to, to, to level the doggone playing field and ensure that everybody gets a fair shake at just living a life where they can be fulfilled. And I, I think we're getting to that, but we just have to be mindful that, you know, open source ecosystems are, are going to be the things that get us collectively there uh, faster. Yeah. And, and, and listen, uh, you made many valid points, a lot of different things that you touched on and disseminated in such a, a eloquent manner. Um, one of the things you spoke about is kind of our space, like when you look at that, um, the black tech, the Afro tech space, when you look at the space, the marijuana space, and it's a lot of bureaucratic red, red tape, if you will, to kind of keep us out. Because when you look at a, a state like Colorado, people are like, well, hey, go legal participate in that particular business. You look at all of the fees, the registration fees, um, the, the, the background checks, everything that's mounted up against you, it automatically disqualifies like 90% of black people from even getting into that arena. And then we're not even talking about the expunging of records and whatnot as well as it relates to petty mar uh, mar marijuana charges that still affect many black men and women currently in 2020. And you brought up another point as well, and I like you kind of go in, go in a little bit more about um, is when you look at Africa and you brought up a good point. I remember reading something with with Garvey a long time ago. It was like the, the uh, philosophy and opinions of Marcus Garvey. And he said something that was a little unsettling to me. I never said this to anybody because I don't know how people review me for kind of saying this or making this critique. But when he was talking about repatriation and going back to Africa he says something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing, that we'll go back and civilize the African, which was odd coming from him. And one of the things that I think we have to be careful of, and the caveat I put out there of anybody that's looking to go back to Africa, do not go back with the mentality of a colonizer. Go with how can I help edify this country with my skill sets? What can I do and try to build reciprocal relationships that's truly based on mutual, uh, mutually beneficial factors as well as helping that country and not just go back there with the, the frame of mind to exploit and what can I take and what can I build without concern about the people that have been living there for centuries now. If you're talking about post um, Berlin Conference 1884 around that period. Um, so it's good to have that sort of frame of mind. So I want to ask you to go a little bit more um, and, and correct me if I mispronounce this or I, I butchered the term, but you said open space eco. Yes, yeah, so open source ecosystems. <laughs> open source ecosystems. So I want you to go in a little bit more about that and not only go in about that, but how can it be advantageous to us as black Americans that are looking to start businesses, um, potentially become financially independent, et cetera? I mean, when you, when you look at open source ecosystems, um, and really, I think the reason why I've gotten a little bit more serious about them is because, you know, my background has been in grant writing for so long. Um, and it's, it's like a second language for me at this point. One thing that you'll see in grants, the most successful, the highest performing organizations in the grant making uh, or the grant writing circle, I should say, are the ones who are able to embrace emerging technologies, right? The emerging technologies that we're talking about embracing, things like Bitcoin, you know, like that's a software that everybody needs to embrace. Yeah. <laughs> we're seeing now it's, you know, it hit its, I think it hit its peak in what, 2017 or so. 
and it's it's about to surpass that now, right? It's, I think it's trading at fifteen uh, something thousand uh, dollars per coin at this point. So I mean, it's it's obviously on its way up again because of global currencies. Whenever there's a financial crisis, you know, you think about your digital wallet, you think about the way that you um, you know try to still gain access to different yeah, yeah. Uh, materials. You got to do it with a currency that you know is comparable to whatever the you know currency system is for that product that you're trying to purchase right if it's worth a dollar then you need to have the equivalent of a dollar to offer or or better right and so you, you just start to think about how currency is working and how really what it's about is value i think for us as a people our value especially for black women our value has always been centered around a GDP that could not, a contribution to the GDP, GDP that could not be quantified properly. Okay. And it can't be quantified properly because it's not necessarily professional services, it's not necessarily uh, consulting in the way that we've thought about it or in the way that the IRS would classify mm -hmm. it. It is literally nation building. And what's so funny about Goldman Sachs and the, the research that they produced about that 47 cents to a dollar for black women uh, business owners What's so funny about that is that they could not produce the research without also talking about the life cycle of the dollar Woo. of that investment in our black community. Black women, you, not, you might not be making, you know, you don't have parity in terms of wage or in terms of, of contract, but you're still, the dollar is still circulating in the community longer than those who do have something closer to, you know, maybe 67 cents mm -hmm. of a dollar. That we, you know, none of us, black men or women, none of us is a dollar for dollar for white, uh, in comparison to white men, yeah. of course. But it's so funny, you look at black women, black women, overwhelmingly, if you take care of a black woman-owned business, you're taking care of an entire community of people. And they're talking about upwards of 50 people per one business, per business, for black, for, per uh, black-owned woman business it's powerful right it's just it's but it's not surprising mm -hmm. because that is what we do mm -hmm. we are naturally nation builders mm -hmm. that's how that's our orientation to the world is to give back and to, to take care of each other you know what i mean that's just what we do and so when i think about open source ecosystems i think about us literally going back to who we are mm -hmm. and are going back to our guiding principle our guiding principles are about taking care of the of the earth of the planet because we are we are the first, you know we are the fertile crescent we are the cradle of civilization mm -hmm. that's who we are and I think when we uh, start to embrace that it's like you know you think about um, Sikhism and how they talk about uh, each individual person's life being a wave in an ocean. Mm -hmm. You know, that wave is very unique, but you'll never see it again once it's gone. Yeah. Right. If, once we start to embrace, I think as a community, once we go back to that, because that's where we come from, you know, once we go back to understanding that resisting the reality that, you know, this body is not mine. These thoughts are not mine. You know, I am, I am literally the uh, culmination of lived experiences. That's it. Life, right? That's it. Yeah. A name was given to me. Everything that I have was given to me. Right. All these things. I think once we get back to just understanding that, 
the meaning of being the wave in the vast ocean, you know, that's mm. controlled by the moon and the stars. And, you know, once we get back to that, I think is when we'll be able to really start to embrace flattening all these hierarchies that we've seen in the world. We've seen all these, mm-hmm. you know, false hierarchies that have been created around uh, personal egos, right? And uh, keeping people out of different uh, different processes, keeping them out of different systems, keep them, keeping them away from opportunity, right? Once we start to embrace flattening the hierarchy with those open source ecosystems is when I think we'll be able to truly get back to our our nature as a people and then once we're back to our nature as a people we're actually you know able then to set the world upright again you know wow it's uh it's amazing that you've mentioned that because it's it's germane to a conversation i was having with someone because what i think that um the, the the paradigm of capitalism that we have as we interpret it um it's antithetical to that symbiotic relationship that you should see with yourself and nature. You see nature as something to exploit. And to take it back further, if you look at the three monotheistic religions, they teach you that you have dominion over nature rather than you being a part of it. That you're you're a part of this tapestry of atoms and subatomic particles and oxygen and, and sun and, and all of these different things that work together to make you who you are as a human. Um, and, and, and that to me, I feel like is something that we're going. So it's kind of like uh, two different battles. There's the battle of the tangibles, the tangibles, the wealth, the land, what can we own? Right. And then there's another battle, the battle of ideology and the battle of perspective. Um, a lot of times I feel that we internalize the materialism. So we try to quantify our worth by possessions as, 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 um, excuse me, instead of how do we relate to ourselves? How do we relate to nature? And I love, one of the things I love is if you look at, uh, like you can look at something that like, uh, Condomble, Santeria, you could look at, um, uh, Obia, like these different uh, scientific, I call them scientific spiritual systems, because when you get into them, they involve calendars, they involve lunar cycles, which you contribute to women. Um, shout out to women for that, giving us the oldest calendar in the history of human humanity with the use of the decimal, the, the Ishango bone. Um, so you have all of these different things, plus a constant spiritual journey. And I think that, and I, and I love that you bring up this point because I've been thinking about it like this. I'm a, uh, I'm a neophyte of economics. I do not have a lot of knowledge, but I'm thinking about a world where we move, <laughs> but I'm thinking about a world where we move past the, in my opinion, the, 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 the trite concepts of capitalism, the trite concepts of socialism, and we find something that's more humanity and earth-based, and possibly we can extrapolate from both and build new, but we also have to look at the ide- the ideology, the ideology of not exploiting nature, the ideology that I live in a cycle, that I'm here, but I'll return to the earth. This body is a vehicle. This corporeal realm is finite, but what I do with my spiritual energy, my intellect, is, this is the fingerprint that I can leave behind the last after me, in addition to progeny, if you want to mention that as well. So um, I find that powerful. I want to ask you, 
a lot of times we focus on, like I said, you know, numbers and ones and zeros and how we can move the economy forward in that aspect. But what led you to the nature and the spiritual based aspect as well that we need to work on? What things brought you to that particular conclusion? Because um, in what's interesting about embracing emerging technologies and what's interesting about disruptive innovation um, is that <laughs> business unusual is kind. And in order to be kind, you have to be um, grounded. You know, you have to really understand what it is that you are um, about. If you're about superficiality, like you said, possessions, and really sort of quantifying your worth through the things that you can amass over your lifetime, then you get that all wrong, right? And we've seen that be proven by, you know, several people that, you know, are titans of industry. They've proven that point before they pass on time and time and time again. So we know that leading a life that was based on business as usual ways of thinking, the old ways of thinking, um, where you're driving people towards being productive because you're, you know, finding ways to exploit them, um, you know, giving them a little, sometimes absolutely nothing, and getting, you know, plenty. That way of thinking, that way of doing business, that way of um, living your life and leading in life is unsustainable. So if you're going to be in business and if you want to be a good business owner, you want to be a good business leader, good business leaders care about their people and they put their people first. Mm -hmm. And if you're not willing to do that, you shouldn't be in business. And I think that that's where we are now. The only people, especially when I think of, you know, business leaders, the only ones who are really succeeding at doing this work that are not in this like sort of manufacturing, you know, piecemeal uh, frame of mind those people are able to pivot and innovate because they're able to understand that it starts first with how you treat your people. How do you lead people? How do you empower people? You know, if you're not the type of person who understands that your legacy really is all that you ever have, (laughs) right? Your legacy is all that you ever have. Money goes, you know, relationships go, all those, all that stuff, you know, but what you leave behind your kids, you know, like you said, um, that's, that's all you have. That's all you have before you go to the next phase, right? You have to, in order, I think, to be successful in anything that we do, we have to be very willing to accept that there are just some things that we can sort of set into motion and that we can control and that we can manipulate and that we can configure. There's some things we can do that for, but for the most part, it's going to be about how much have you resisted life versus how much have you just gone with the flow. And if you go with the flow and you, and you're good to people, you, sh- you know, you should be able to have a very, you know, your legacy should be good. And that's what, and that's what we're talking about is we're talking about, you know, your legacy. It's all about legacy work. Legacy. I think that with business unusual, you've got to approach it that way. 
do you do you see <clears throat> because what, what what you just said it made me think about this leadership and I think a lot of times there's a certain hubris attached to the concept if I say leader certain things come to mind it's the, it's the corner office it's this sort of car but do you think real leadership is actually a life of service because you mentioned something you said to actually care about others ahead of yourself I actually heard Dame Dash say the same thing and and listening to you I'm looking at it maybe we have a wrong way not myself but in society in general we have an erroneous perspective in how we classify leadership and I think what I'm gathering from what you're saying at least and you can correct me if I'm wrong that really true leadership is humility, humbleness, putting others ahead of yourself, and then having the foresight and knowledge to not mislead people. That's what I took away from it. Yeah, it's the principles of my heart. You know, that's Woo. what I always try to tell people. Balance. Is if you don't have that balance, exactly, then, I mean, I don't know what to tell you because, you know, you're going to, someone's always trying to be like you, somebody's always trying to be better than you, and that's okay. You know, that's, that's the natural competitive nature of people. And, and that's just what it is. Right. Mm. But I think the, the way that people um, attract to you and the way that people relate to you um, becomes a bit more substantive and becomes a bit more spiritual when you are in a place in your life where you can just, you respect is not something that you have to think about. Like a lot of people actually have to like remind themselves, you know, Oh, I need to not be transactional. Okay. Let me not be transactional. You know, you start to meet people and you start to notice that they, they, they treat you different, you know, depending on what they think about you, you know, what they think really what they think you can do for them. Yeah. You know, but you have to check yourself. Like, I don't care who I'm talking to, where I'm at at the end of the day, you, we are the same. There's no bit of me that's better than anybody and vice versa. You know, if I can't walk up on the president or whoever it is and just have a normal conversation and I just have dignity as a human being, then that's not a space that I want to be in. You know, mm -hmm. that's not a person that I want to emulate. That's not a person that I want to admire. Yeah. Because you don't understand at the end of the day, we are, we are one. If you don't see the oneness in the world and see the oneness in, you know, your reflections from your left to your right, you know, your front to your back, then, you know, something's off. And and whatever gains that you think that you that you, you know, made, those things are gonna be very temporary, probably more temporary than what they would have been had you actually been humble and had it together, you know. It, 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 you make I, me I honestly truly believe that. And and um and I wanna move to the next topic, but you make me think about this. And um, this is something I've never said public publicly um, to anyone, but I think one of the one of the more nefarious things about and listen, like I said, let me let me preface this. I'm not trying to be pro socialist or pro this. This is just my observation. I just want to put that out there to everyone. But I think one of the the more nefarious aspects of this system it cannot survive if you're if you're this system cannot function if human beings meet satisfaction like you always have to be in a state of needing to be better and chasing this and i have oh well i have the 2018 you know toyota avalon but uh, the 2021 just came out so i'm gonna get in more debt 
to chase that. And now I have to, maybe I might make six figures, but I'm in a job that I hate. But hey, I want to have all these material uh, possessions. I want to live like this uh, status. I want to show people I can afford this condo. So I'm going to keep putting myself into the game. And the game cannot work if, you've ever, if you're ever satisfied. This is a system that teaches you to never be happy, to never be satisfied, to never embrace yourself. Because if you do, you can't buy more shit. Pardon my, pardon my language. Pardon me. <laughs> you can't, you know, if you ever hit a point, if you ever hit a point of satisfaction, they're like, oh, I check out. I'm good where I'm at. But see, we make it a bad thing for you to, to be satisfied because then the banks can't eat. The corporations can't yeah. eat. They need you to be unsatisfied and to need to, and to need to have the newest and latest gadget. And I feel like because the our society is that way, we're going to be in a constant state of anxiety, a constant state of comparison because, oh, well, they have that and they own this. Why don't I have that? Why don't I own this? So I need to work harder. I need to pull myself up by my bootstraps and work an 80 hour week so I can buy this and I can have that and I can own this thing. And so you're constantly pushing yourself for things that truly have no intrinsic value. What's valuable is family and friendships and helping people and, and good energy and positive people around you and your health. Those are the things that matter. And, and um, I heard Joe Rogan say this. I think it was him. You want to get to the point where you have enough money to pay your bills so you don't have to think about money. That shouldn't be your primary impetus for, su for success and moving ahead in life. Um, but you, sister, you, you draw so much out of me and, and listen, I hope everybody's listening to this. You're taking notes to the powerful Luana Lawson, please, because she's given a lot of information. So I want to switch subjects a little bit. Um, unless you've been living under a rock recently, we've had an election. <laughs> and, um, first, before we get into that in general, <coughs> Ooh, this question, any, <laughs> The Trump presidency, it's a whole lot we can say. I know we could spend hours talking about it. But in general, um, what do you think is the sort of impact? Because I have my, my views and I have a few things I can name. But if you can name maybe two or three, you know, like I said, because this subject is kind of loaded and we could sit here all evening and talk about it. So just kind of, <laughs> you know, just kind of a synopsis. Um what do you think are kind of the dangerous residual effects on this country and on the moral fabric of this country? As you said, before the pandemic, we were already bleeding. And before the pandemic and before Trump, the moral compass of this country was kind of mediocre at best. So the already mediocre moral compass of this country, what do you think the, 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 the Trump presidency, what are the negatives, if you will, as far as the, the 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 disdain the the divisiveness um the the uh, the the desecration of the moral fabric of this country like what are the effects you see of the Trump presidency? Hmm. I think the biggest issue for me, um, my students, really, especially the ones who are, you know international students, for a moment there, um, I saw how they treated like faculty like myself that you know are black i saw how they treated us and what was so sad about it and what was so actually to say not sad infuriating about it is is that 
they were, they felt that they could treat us the way that they did because of the fact that we had the president that we had, right? Because we had this ignoramus who was literally prancing around, um, speaking very ill of black women on a daily basis, um, being very disrespectful in general about women. And, um, you know, just thinking about some of the things that he used to say, man, like it just, it, it still gets under my skin to this day because I'm like, there's no way in hell this country elected this ass. Like, how did we, yeah. we were already shit before. Like, right. Like, let's just be real about it. America wasn't America before him. We knew that we, there were things some of us knew up front already, even when president Obama was in, in office, well, I should say not even, especially when president Obama was in office, we knew already that this country was no different from any other country, right? We talk about all these different, oh, Hugo Chavez, and, and we talk about all these different dictators, and oh, you know, we have been no different from any of these other countries that we think are uncivilized or, you know, don't have a good moral compass, like you said before. We are no different. The only difference is that we are more, um, we're, we're consumers of more bullshit. That's the only difference. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only difference. We've been fed all this crap for so long. Every, you know, a lot of the people um, who have been involved in the political process all this time have been, um, well, I ain't going to go all there. I ain't going to go there. Not today. That'll be a totally different conversation. <laughs> but I think that to your point, um, you know, what we are going to have to contend with now that we have a new uh, POTUS and be POTUS coming in in their administration, what we're going to have to contend with is our reputation throughout the world. You know, I don't think in recent history that the world was able to see just how fucked up we were. We really were. And with, you know, Trump, the world saw just how false the American dream is, has been, uh, but the world also saw just how false um, every all the tenets that we espouse, right? We're supposed to be the only democracy in the world that's like ours. Um, but I think with Trump, what we saw is that we were not we're not a democracy at all. And I think it was the it was the opportunity for us continentally to wake the fuck up and realize, oh, we 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 are not a democracy. We haven't been one for quite some time. If we ever were one. But then, too, it's an opportunity for the world um, to see us for who we really are. So now we have some real making up to do. You know what I mean? Like now we we really need to rise to the occasion and show the world that we can still be this uh, sort of intellectual powerhouse that we've been and this sort of national. We've been a security. So, I mean, we've been a policing force um, for how many generations? How many? I should say how many centuries we've been a policing force. Uh, throughout the world. How the hell can you be a policing force, a global policing force, trying to tell different presidents and different administrations uh, that what they're doing is inhumane and what they're doing is this and this and that and the third, but you got this damn president who literally, we lost how many lives? Almost 300,000 lives. And I'm sure it's more than that to be real with you because there's so many, and and it's so funny that the, the, the census, you know, the way that they handled the census this year, very interesting there, but not surprising. I'm sure that there are whole towns of us black people missing because I can tell you right now, we lost seven people in my family 
Oh, wow. And a lot of those people were kids. Lord. So, you know, those kids, they were in school and, you know, they were being kids, you know, they were everywhere. So you can't tell me that whole towns are not gone at consequence to this pandemic. But you see, the reality is that we'll never really know. We never are going to be able to find out why, because most all of these death cases had other issues. They had comorbidity issues, right? So when you look at the death certificate, the death certificate ain't going to say COVID. The death certificate is going to say heart attack, you know, or it's going to say, you know, bronchitis or pneumonia or um, uh, renal. A lot of people have been dying from kidney failure. Yeah. Renal failure. A lot of us, it's black people. So, so that's how they're going to code the death. You're not even going to really know who died from the COVID-19 pandemic. So this fool is only counting the deaths that we can actually attribute, that were actually codified that way. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know we've died. You know we've died. A plenty. Mississippi. Come on now, Mississippi. Oh, come on. Louisiana, <sighs> Alabama. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's what they don't want to talk about. So, so we have to contend with all of those lives that we've lost that were completely, utterly preventable, totally preventable. You know what I mean? We have to recover from that. We ain't going to be able to recover from that. You know, Canada is going to be the more authority, you know, hell, the UK, your boy uh, Johnson, the, the other Trump, you know, as we've called him, <laughs> you know, he had enough damn sense. He reached out to President, uh, you know, President-elect uh, Biden. He reached out and said, you know, hey, congratulations. Looking forward to working with you. He got sense. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the rest of the world has sense. He's, he's held press conferences in the UK to talk about, you know, the fact that they're going to have to shut some shit down again. They got to shut down the economy uh, so that they can get, you know, get, get mm -hmm. the pandemic under, um, you know, under control. He, they're doing that in the UK. <laughs> you yeah. know what I'm saying? So all these other countries, uh, especially New Zealand, you know, the sister out there in New Zealand, all these other countries who've gotten it together, those are going to be your moral authorities now. You know, United States, we're going to have to fight to try to get back there. And to be real with you, we never should have been anyway. You know, you look at UNESCO and you look at, you know, where our public school system has ranked um, over the past forever. Uh, ever since they started ranking the damn school systems throughout the globe, you see we've always been at the bottom of the list. Uh, when it comes to healthcare, we've always been at the bottom of the list. So we really shouldn't have been a moral authority ever. And we really mm -hmm. shouldn't have been a policing authority ever. Um, and I think those days are, are numbered. Those days are, are going to be done. So that, that's going to have some real ramifications for um, defense, right, for our military. You know, now, especially with tech, you know, the, the military is going to look a lot different. You know, service to the country uh, is going to look a lot different. So I'm really... You know, I'm not terrified about the future, but I am a little scared uh, to see how this thing pans out because um, we've got some pretty major shifts. I mean, you're talking about they're talking about flying taxis right now, you know, with the uh, president and, and all these different Uber and Lyft and all these other companies that are, you know, announcing that they're going to go uh, carbon free, you know, zero emissions. This electric vehicle space has been booming. You see all the battery companies yeah. have been popping. Yeah. Uh, again, mining. Those have been popping because we're all preparing for, you know, this electric vehicle push. 
So you talk about flying taxis, you know, which are basically just, you know, drones with people, right? Um, but you're also talking about uh, where the hell these, these electric vehicles, where are they going to go? All the damn businesses are shutting down. So yeah. are they going to go to Amazon and Walmart? Yeah. Yeah, but well, you, you know, and, and uh, you know, to your point, and you made so many different points, the fact that we even have the audacity to try to police the world or be or be the barometer for the moral compass. When you look at how black people have been treated here in this country, how women have been treated here in this country, and specifically how black women have been treated here in this country. You know, we can go through scientific racism with J. Marion Sims. We can look at the Reconstruction period. We can look at the Homestead Act. It's just so many different things that have affected us socially. How we've been. Um, I had a good conversation with a friend of mine a few days ago, and he's uh, uh, I would say he's kind of like quasi -ag agnostic, and he has a tendency to really romanticize science. Now, I'm a person that's pro science, but what I was also explaining to him is that you can't ignore the role that scientific racism has played in our history to justify us being less than human. So these are things that have happened within America. Um, this is a place where you look at, for example, the thing that Ice Cube was talking about with his contract for Black America is predatory lending habits, how we're charged higher APRs than anybody else. You look at the, the APR on a, a car note for a Black person versus a non-Black person. You look at the interest on a business loan for a Black-owned business versus a non-Black-owned business. And nobody, nobody is really trying to take active steps um, to stop that. So it's like for us to try to be, and, and this is keeping it light, I think the last time prior to Trump that the world really got to see how um, fucked up, for lack of better words, American society is, I think is when Malcolm X tried to take the U.S. before the United Nations. And he really wanted to put everything out there about what's going on. And I've, I've started to tell people, think about it like this. When you see police officers murdering black people, say this instead. Police officers are murdering American citizens because that's what it is. But because we've, been, we've internalized that we're on the periphery of American culture, we don't even refer to ourselves as Americans. And really, like I've told people, most white immigrants didn't really start getting here to the 1790s. We've been here. We've been here to put every single brick in every single major city. You look at Wall Street, all of the first companies there, they got their money off of investing in slave ships. You look at William Byrd here in the Richmond area, how did he make his money? Investing in slavery. Whole industries and cities popped up off of that. So when people hit me with the uh, American dream and America being the moral compass, this country has done nothing to be the moral barometer anywhere else in the world. And we will not atone for what's happened to indigenous people, what's happened to women, what's happened to black people and many other marginalized groups in this country. And, and, and that got me as well. But with Trump, I guess my, my very, very brief opinion on Trump is that he embodies what's here. He embodies what we don't want to pay attention to. We're crass, we're ignorant, we don't like to educate ourselves, we're narcissists, we're, we're materialistic, we're shallow, we don't care about cultures, other cultures other than our own, we're xenophobic, we care about our own self-interest, and he embodied what the average American is. And that's what we are. Trump is the reflection of who we are truly as Americans. We tear away the... the uh, 
the the the, the peasant the um excuse me the pageantry if we tear away you know what we think we're supposed to act like Trump is what we are for the most part and he exposed that to the world and listen um part of this is Obama's fault and what I mean by that is not that yeah. Obama himself personally but we're so think about it we're so racist we hate the advancement of black people so much right that a black president made America vote for Trump that was the backlash for Barack Obama and it's just it's it's just disgusting I mean and I want to ask you made a point and I want you to go a little bit more into this because it disturbed me when you said it, and you and you were making so many brilliant points I didn't want to stop you when you said that under the, uh, the Trump presidency, you notice how yourself being a black professor and an educator was treated differently. Can you elaborate on that for the listeners? Hmm. Yes. Um, we have, it, it's, we have such a battle, you know what I mean? Like there's so many different, our agencies present so, there's an intersection of just like, our, my students, you know, since they're coming from all over the world, you know, they're coming from Mexico, they're coming from Saudi Arabia, they're coming, you know, from, from, um, uh, I had one from Bosnia, another one from Venezuela, and Brazil even, you know, they're coming from all corners of the world, uh, China, of course. Um, with this man in, in office, especially the ones who, you know, were pro- they, they were supporters of them. Mm-hmm. They, um, the, the way that they would try to, even in emails and, and when they would be in class, the way that they would talk to us. I mean, I have one that went as far as to um, mispronounce my first name. And you already know, you're in my class. You don't call me by my first name. <laughs> um, wow. And, wow. And he, you know, he kind of like... He would walk up on me when he wanted to convey a point. He would walk up on me in class and, um, you know, just very disrespectful uh, guy. So I had to put him in his place a couple of times. I'm like, listen, you know, I don't know who you think you are, uh, but in this space, this is my class. And, you know, you will respect me. Hold on, Luana. Also make sure. Real quick, real quick, right? real quick. Listen. Okay, listen. I listen. I know you're you're a brilliant intellectual researcher, business owner, professor. You're from Southside. You you should he he should he should have caught that fade. You gotta listen. You gotta let the people in Texas know what time it is out there, man. You gotta like look. I get it. I know where you're at in life. I understand. I I do. But there's sometimes where you gotta reach back. You gotta reach back to the essence of where you from. <laughs> Yeah, I'm joking. I, yeah, I know. <laughs> Look, I don't want them to. I don't want them to be afraid of me. That's what's gonna happen. They don't be scared. They was like, "Dang!" Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Yes, I am. Yeah. But no, but you're right, and it's just like, but you do have to, you know, little parts of you, you do, you know, when they come up on me, you know, I'm not a bug bag, so I'm just yeah. like, you know, but you know, little parts of you, you do have to sort of assert but you don't want to ever have to do that like i'm not here to prove nothing to you you know what i mean like that's that's how 
my, you know, with my students, that's how it is. I'm like, I have nothing. Even with my fellow faculty members, I have nothing to prove, you know, to you. If you um, have issues with me, you know, we can have a conversation uh, in in private, but don't be trying to do nothing in public because I'm going to shut it down. You already know how I get down. We're going to shut it down immediately. But no, yeah, those, a lot of the students, because of of, of the president, um, they just, you know, lost a lot of respect for... Uh, mm. the black women, for sure. I didn't see it too much wow. with our black male faculty. Our men, uh, thank God. Uh, but I did see it a lot with our black women. And yeah. it, it definitely, I had a lot to say, you know, over these past couple of years. I've been talking a lot about, you know, decorum and how you need to treat um, everyone fairly and, yeah. and treat them equally. You know, don't be disrespectful uh, because you think you can get away with it because somebody's going to call you out and it's going to be me. Yeah. So yeah, he had these, he had all kind of folks feeling themselves. So that's wow. why he needs to get on with his life. Yeah, he, um, I don't know if you heard, because I know you still kind of keep abreast about uh, news is going on here in Richmond at times. No? Okay. <laughs> but um, so on a few mm-hmm. days before the election, the Trump train was circling the Robert E. Lee statue. And they they were they were really out here um, to support. I seen you know one of the things that scared me about Trump is uh, I look at it, and you're, you're a student of history as well. And when I look at the fact that he advocated jailing political opposition, you want to anything that any dissenting opinion in media, you want to censor that about yourself. He all he he even talked about trying to start his own Trump network. Kind of sounds Joseph Stalin-esque there, but anyway, uh, you 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 want <laughs> you you want to you want to uh, use military to suppress protesters, um, and I've heard him on video. It came out of his mouth, not anybody else's. Oh, a third term—that'll sound nice. Well, let's see about twenty-year term limits. Oh, president for life—that sounds pretty good as well. And and what scared me is that Mitch McConnell in the Senate, they bow down to whatever he wants. They acquiesce to every... They, mm. He could come out and say, hey, look, I feel like he could come out and say, guys, look, um, I want to shoot a puppy in the head. What do you think? Well, uh, you know, you're our president. So I feel like that's what they, they would say, right? And so I look at that, and the thing I've told people, because there were a lot of people that were pro-Bernie, that were like, yo, I'm not going to go out and vote this election, there were people that were just like, I don't like either candidate. I, I've, I've had these conversations. They're like, listen, listen, I'm not going to go and vote. Um, in addition to everything else, the vitriol of his racism and all of that, you don't, you don't want to hear the commander in chief, the man that holds the most powerful position in the world, joke about third terms and indefinite terms and being president for life. That is not something that you joke about. And that perked up my ears because I've seen that before. I've yep. seen it before in Italy. I've seen it before in Germany. Yep. I've seen this movie before, right? You don't. And the, and the deadly thing is, is when you think that that can't happen is when you're subject to allow it to happen. And, you know, those that was one of the reasons why I went out and, and voted. So I want to switch up because, like I said, we only have a few more minutes left. Um, I, I want to ask you, have you heard about the, and I'm pretty sure you have, Ice Cube's uh, contract 
that he, he was talking about the contract with black America, that if you're going to get our vote, um, you need to make certain promises if you want to pander to us. And I think of a few of the things he talked about in the, in the black, um, the contract with black America. And I think I have it up here. Um, where's Oh yeah. So police reform act, uh, black lending reform. He wanted to talk about, uh, ways to fix systemic racism, um, economic, et cetera. And he kind of, I think he said that what inspired him, he started to do this after George, George Floyd was murdered. Uh, and so he kind of was going to the Democrats. He went to, you know, I think he reached out to Trump. And so, uh, you know, what's your opinion on Ice Cube's contract with Black America? Uh, the timing of it? Um, is it something you, is it something you believe we need to kind of discuss more in depth? Uh, what's your opinion on it in general? I thought it was great that we had um, a black man uh, specifically come forth. And I mean, come on, it's NWA. You know, we got yes, the attitude up in here. I was yeah. happy. So I was very happy to see that he, you know, he came out and, and put together uh, with a great team, um, you know, some really good preliminary thoughts around what we would, what we would be demanding from uh, candidates locally, statewide, and uh, nationally. I thought it was a great place to begin. I think for the timing, I was very disappointed. And I was also very disappointed in how the Trump campaign was able to spin uh, the fact that they did get to meet with uh, Ice Cube. Ice Cube is, you know, people don't want to, they want to talk him down now, but Ice Cube is uh, a pillar, an anchor in our community. Uh, globally, he is. Uh, and so, you know, he's the, he's the first of many things, but, he, but he's also very brilliant uh in many different capacities, in many different ways, and his his voice and his uh, contributions to our greatness as a people will never be overstated. You know, he's just, mm -hmm. I think, I've always thought very highly of him. The reality is that when he came out, I was very disappointed because the timing was, it was like, damn, you know, we're about to go, we voting right now. <laughs> yeah. We're really voting yeah. right now. We're going on, you know. Yeah. I was very yeah. disappointed at the timing, and I was also very disappointed um at how the agenda was presented. You know, um, I don't think people had the opportunity to really get acquainted with the agenda because they, you know, they were looking at him. You know, it was all mm -hmm. about him. What What's his intention behind this? What does he, you know, it's not about him. The agenda that his team, you know, those academics and all the other community leaders that he uh, organized around putting together some, some really great uh, demands that team, we don't know who they are. He didn't, no one put them out there. Yeah. And that's, that's where it should have begun is with the team. And uh, so I was very disappointed that people were not acquainted with the actual agenda itself. They mm -hmm. were more so focused on him and his intention. I don't care what his intentions are. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think that the intentions matter. I think that the, the reality of the situation is that what he's, the message that he's getting across is that if we don't have agendas, uh, if we don't have demands, if we don't make demands, then nothing will change for us. And that's the bottom line. And it's the truth. Yeah. Um, and if we want to be organized and we want to be effective as a people, then we have to be very clear. You know, we're not a monolith. So I, I appreciated some of the critics that came out and was like, you know, I ain't no sheep, I don't need a shepherd. I feel that. Like, I, I agree. Indeed. 100%. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, we make impact in numbers. Not not one individual person is going to make it happen. So if you can find 
uh, you know, an ice cube or a person like him who's putting together an agenda that you could agree with, then you need to go find that person uh, or be the person and, you know, amass some, some doggone, you know, like minds. That's what it's about. We have to bring our like minds together uh, to be able to advocate for what we need, you know, whoever the we is. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Ice Cube just reminded us of that. I know Diddy did some stuff too, where he was trying to mobilize folks. And, um, you know, uh, my boy Killer Mike. Oh, yes, sir. Some, you know, organizing. Yeah. That's my right there. I, I love, I love Killer Mike. I love, I love Killer yeah. Mike. That, that's my, I'm gonna meet him one day. I'm speaking that into existence. Like I'm a, I'm gonna meet Killer Mike yeah. and I'm gonna have him on this podcast. Like I'm speaking, I love yeah. Killer Mike. I love him. Like, um, yeah. I'm gonna send an email. Yeah, listen, David we, listen. David Banner's been organizing. Yeah, but uh, you saw Tim Mallory been organizing. But, but so something, here. something I, I, I was kind of wondering. And hold up, what? Did you record the Zoom? Yeah, yeah, it's recording, all of it. Like, I got it all recording. It's, listen, we're going to hit them from every angle with this one. Okay, so hold on. So, all right, so I got the I got the audio back popping again. So, um, this is one of the things, really quick, that I didn't, I kind of wondered with the Ice Cube thing, Like, and you mentioned it. He didn't really highlight who was in on the research part of that. But if I could kind of add on another part, I was wondering, like, man... Killer Mike is out here. Immortal Technique is out here. Um, uh, uh, David Banner is out here. I would have loved to seen like him come together with those brothers, and they come as a united front of a thoroughly well thought out contract with Black America. No shade to Ice Cube's contract. Not saying that it wasn't thoroughly thought out, but I love unity and seeing us and have have the women involved. Have some sisters at the table as well. Because you have like uh, black women like Rhapsody out here, um, Queen Latifah. There's a lot of people that do a lot of great stuff and come together as a united front representing us. And as you said, we're not a monolith. And you guys are very much diverse in all of your opinions and perspectives. But I would have loved to have seen something like that as opposed to Cube trying to like solo this, you know? Yeah, I just, I mean, Stacey Abrams. So we literally Ooh. have to give her her roses, right? Like, we got Georgia because of her, right? And, and I think when you don't include, she's an intellectual giant. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, yes. on, on so many different levels. Yes. When you don't include people like her in these types of, like, grandiose uh, types of plans, she knows, she knows how to organize. She knows how to mobilize. She knows how to plan. She's a policymaker. I mean, she's all of these things. Why would you not include someone like that? And I want to ask you this. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I read that Stacey Abrams was responsible for over 800,000 people registering and becoming eligible to vote. Is that correct? That's right. Listen, she, she, she's another, and, and that's what I'm saying. It's, it's just so many powerful people, giants, like you're saying, giants out here at your disposal that you can use, that you can talk to, you know, if you're talking about an economic piece, why not speak to someone like Dr. Claude Anderson? It was like yes. all of these different people out here that Cube could have reached out to, and they, you know, he it felt like he just kind of took this solo mission. And you know, as you and I know, 
the, the, the popular the popular aphorism is, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. You want to go uh, far, go together. And we're trying to go far instead of fast. You know, um, we're looking at the marathon of this. And, um, and speaking to that point, so Biden, although Trump at the moment saying he's not going to concede and, you know, they're... <laughs> They have these lawsuits that they're trying to do and these recounts and, and whatnot. But technically, Joe Biden is the president-elect of the United States. And so we, we're, we're prepping ourselves for this Biden-Harris administration. And one of the critiques I've seen from people, and this disturbed me, black men, apparently when, when Trump won, uh, won in 2016, 13% of black men voted for Trump. This year it was 20. And I saw a... a a trend amongst a lot of my brothers uh, that I don't know too much the to go out here and vote for Trump. And I remember they were telling me, uh, you know, you want to get off of the, the Democrat plantation and all of this stuff. But Trump has... <laughs> Trump, listen, Trump has done so many my things. Better than yours. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Trump has done so many things that have been antithetical to black people. I mean, through his statements, through his actions. And I just, I'm not seeing the correlation, but the, 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 uh, the quotidian critique that I've seen is that the Democrats really don't justify why we vote for them. They don't really earn our vote. And with that being said, with the contract uh, with black America that Ice Cube was trying to get going, um, in your own perspective, as black people, and you've seen through Stacey Abels and black, let's put it out there, black women, let me say it again, black women saved the Democratic Party. The urban censors with black people saved the Democratic Party. So as we've, as we've already established, there's no going back to normal. We're creating a new normal. We're going forward. Since we, we really pushed this administration into office, as black people, should we, what should we do now? What demands, is there anything we should try to um, go to Washington, go to our politicians about? Because we kind of come through, not even kind of, we do, we come through on clutch every election for these politicians. And, you know, they'll take a photo op in a rib shack or they're like, hey, I wear Jordans. And, you know, they'll, they'll meet up with Jay-Z and, you know, that's kind of what we get. And then we don't hear from them again for another four years or what have you. So considering this election and, and how black through and primarily black women came through for the Democratic Party, um, what should our perspective be of the Democratic Party going forward or what sort of demands or anything like that should we make? We don't belong to any party. You know what I mean? And we need to run. I am... Uh... I was I was dealing with that too. You know, I had a lot of of, of men, has a lot of Hispanic men and black men coming to me talking about, you know, yeah, you need to vote for Trump because you know you're a business owner and business owners, you know, don't want to have uh, the taxes raised and yada yada yada. I said first of all, I, I day trade, but I don't have any issues with paying uh, taxes on my cap if I have any capital gains. Because Lord knows what this damn market. <laughs> I said, if y'all need to raise capital gains taxes, go right ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I have no problem with that. Um, I told him, I said, if anything, as a business owner, I'd do better with a Biden administration because at least I know that there's going to be some renewed focus and attention on supporting local business. 
But um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think for us as a community, we have to be um, acquainted with the fact that the two-party system is a plantation system. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't matter which plantation you own, you still got a master, and uh, <laughs> your master still has uh, their interests that you're going to yep. be working for. I mean, it's just what it is. So I think for us, we have to be um, able to hear all sides, uh, especially libertarians. There's a, there's a growing number of uh, African-American men I've been noticing that are going into the Libertarian Party. I'm not mad at it. Um, you know, the Green Party, I know we've been there. We've yeah. established that party. Uh, we're still, you know, having a great stronghold there. A lot of brilliant uh, candidates that come out of the Green Party. Uh, Cynthia so McKinney. a multi-party system unofficially. Uh, and I think that we just need to find ways to get more involved civically in that mm. capacity. It's not about voting. Voting is like the, you know, the easiest, last, laziest thing to do. You know, the hard thing is to run yourself. Yeah. Uh, I don't care if you got five dollars in the bank. If you ain't got a bank account, if you got EBT, you need to run for office. Hmm. Uh, the reality is that you know we, if we want to make this a more perfect union, then we have to be more representative of, of all of us. And so that means that we just have to get acquainted with you know I don't know shit about uh, local politics, but guess what? I'm still gonna run because I'm gonna find out in the crash course. I mean that's just what you have to do. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think so. We need to be comfortable again with being uncomfortable and uh that's going to require you to just step out here and and make some radical things happen and uh, i think that's what we need to do next that's it that's mm -hmm. you know you can't get lazy you can't get you know you said it earlier you can't you know fall asleep at the wheel because you're like oh okay i, I look around i see people that look like me and i'm good that's not how it works yeah. you know we got clarence thomas coon ass on the, <laughs> on the supreme court <laughs> you know what yeah <laughs> It's um. Listen, it, it, you know, I love what Jesse Ventura said when he called this this system a two party dictatorship. I love I love it. I say it all the time. And the the problem with with it and, and what I think what a lot of people don't understand, you kind of this is kind of Ross Perot's uh, fault because you remember when he ran, he had billions of dollars, so he could just buy up airtime and run commercials, and he was a problem for the Republicans and the Democrats. And Bill Clinton and Bob Dole was like, yo, we putting an end to this. You got to come through us if you want to run for this office now. And that's why you see, like, Bernie Sanders technically isn't really a Democrat. You know, Ron Paul technically isn't really a Republican. He's a libertarian. But what did they have to do? They had to choose one of those channels to go through in order to run for president. Or you could be somebody like Gary Johnson or um, what was her name? Joe, Joe... She was an independent that was on this ticket. I always mess up her last name. Joe, Joe, it's it's a weird name. I can't pronounce it. But it's it's messed up yeah. that the RNC and the DNC has such a, a monopoly, a biopoly, really, on politics that you, if you're not with their program, you can't get in there. And so, like you said, I agree. The way we change it, like you pointed out, and I'm just repeating you at the moment, is that we start at the grassroots level. Get independent candidates in as your aldermen, your councilmen. You know, you move up the mayor, and then we start to get into these Senate seats. And we and, and that's how we build, offer people an alternative because I don't like binaries. I don't like it because most of us are not a binary. Most of us don't operate in this dichotomy of either we're here or we're that. 
many of us have things we feel we feel kind of conservative on. Some people feel more liberal on. And then there's the other and the gray area. And a lot of us have a whole lot of gray area that the DNC and the RNC never addresses. Um, my, my follow-up question to that, and then I'm going to let you go because I know you have a, a lot of stuff to do. And I don't want to hold you too much longer. Um, saying that, uh, do you ever see yourself running for any sort of political office? Um, I hope the answer is yes, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) I've always said no to that. And I think um, that's going to be consistent no for me. And it's only because being being a, a states person or a politician at this point is so, it's all about style and no substance. Like straight Mm. up. You know what I mean? Like that's why Stacey Abrams is not the governor of Georgia. The woman is all substance. Yeah. You know, and she's got that too. But her substance is out this roof. I mean, and so you just think about, uh, I I wouldn't want to um, be a shallow governor in the sense, you know, I'm governing over a body of people or constituency. I don't, I don't want to be shallow in anything that I do. So if I'm going to be in the position, I want to be able to, to act truly as a policymaker um, who is not only well-informed, but also is able to, um, you know, do the job because I'm qualified to do the job. You know, it's not just because you like me and my story and all the shit that doesn't matter, right? You know, all those I'm not saying people's stories don't matter, but I think we get so caught up in, um, oh, I can relate to you. You know, Mm. we get so caught up in that, that it really, it just takes away from, you know, what is it that you really are trying to accomplish? You know, are you really trying to get a person in here that knows how to move this organization forward? It's just like when I get consulted, you know, to do business for these different organizations, you know why you're hiring me. Yeah. You know, you, you know, I'm coming in. And I'm going to help you grow. I'm going to help you grow, you know, your fundraising efforts. I'm going to help you grow your talent. I'm going to help you grow, you know, your board. You know what I'm coming in to do because you've seen me do this before. And or, you know, you've read it somewhere and you're like, oh, let's let's try this out. I, I'm qualified to do that. You hire me to do the job because I'm qualified to do that. If that's how elected office was, and I think at one point it was that way. If that's how it was now, I would be happy to serve in elected, you know, capacity. But it's not like that anymore. Mm. It's not like that anymore. You know, you go in and you're literally a brand at that point. You yeah. know, you're a marketer. And I, I'm not interested in in the flair. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not interested in that. I want to do that. I want to be able to, to do the work of taking care of people, getting people access, helping people live a more fulfilling life. Indeed. That's what I'm about. Indeed. <laughs> and that doesn't really come with style. <laughs> yeah. It just comes with a whole, whole lot of substance. Wow. It, it, listen, um, powerful response. So I, I want to end this on a on a lighter note. I think a lot of information has been provided on this particular episode. Um, first question is this. What would you say is uh, a particular maybe quote you've read? or some sort of proverb that you've read that really has resonated with you and it's kind of been a tool to help maybe ground you or guide you in life? Is there like any piece of wisdom or literature you've come across that has kind of, not saying that 
you know, that it kind of gave you direction, but it augmented the the, uh, the trajectory that you were already on. And if so, would you be kind enough to share that with us as well? I am deliberate and afraid of nothing by Audrey Lord. That's what I love. I love ones that, I love the brevity and to the point and brilliant. Listen, Miss mm -hmm. Lawson, I want to thank you deeply from the bottom of my heart for coming on episode 53 of No Truths Barred. Hopefully we can have you back again in the future. Um, it's always an honor to have you and, and, and great conversation. And also really quick, if you have anything you're working on, something you're putting out, something you want to promote, um, if you want to tell people how to follow you, just go ahead and take this time to do that. Okay, so I do want us to have another, uh, well, I want us to do like a live webinar kind of deal because okay. I do have a book that's coming out um, in just a couple of weeks. It's called A Project Manager's Guide to Grant Writing. And it's literally, if you've ever wanted, if you were ever curious about grant writing, if you uh, ever wanted to lead a nonprofit or uh, get a grant for your business, right? This is the book to read. It disentangles the very mysterious uh, process that is involved with, you know, successfully writing grants. So get the, I want us to talk about the book just like live. That's like my Christmas wish is for us to talk about the book and, um, and get as many people to want to, uh, you know, read it as possible. Uh, I think the only other thing that I would share right now, uh, that's my biggest announcement. I think the only other thing I would share is, you know, if you want to uh, follow me, on uh, Instagram at growth is tacit. Growth is tacit. Um, I'm on Twitter at hi it's lj2, and that's where I talk mostly about investing in stocks. Um, and then I'm also on LinkedIn at Lafana Chambers Lawson, my full name on LinkedIn, and on Facebook I think too the same. So okay, that's all from me. Well, look, listen, I want to thank you for coming on. I deeply appreciate it. I think this was a powerful podcast and a powerful conversation. And also, if you're not doing so already, make sure you're following me on Instagram at Hoyt, H-O-Y-T underscore Kuwaku, K-W-A-K-U underscore Timmons. That's T-I-M-M-O-N-S. And also, I have a second Instagram page, which is simply uh, underscore to the left, no truth barred. So make sure you follow both. Make sure you subscribe to my YouTube channel. And once again, thank you very much for listening and supporting. Until next time, peace.